Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Most people can't seem to adapt. And I think adapting is what helps people survive. If you can adapt to the changes in the environment, adapt to what is getting people somewhere, not getting stuck, not getting hyper-focused, not getting intransigent, and being able to change what you're doing according to what's going on, being able to improvise, being able to just have a lot of outs, have a lot of different ways, and not getting overly just fixated, I think is a big thing for anyone in trying to make it. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Great to have you here. Thanks for everything. I hope you enjoyed part one of Dave Cyrus. We have part two today. You're really going to enjoy it a lot. So, so inspirational. Such an amazing, amazing guy. Such great advice. I know you're going to love it a lot. And if you need to reach me, you can do so at Instagram or X or at BarryCats.com. And before I get started, let me tell you something about Dave Cyrus. When I think of Dave Cyrus, I think of a guy who is pretty misunderstood. He looks very young. He's very quiet and unassuming, yet he works with some of the greatest people in the world. From Robert Smigel to Pete Davidson to Judd Apatow, never stops. And the reason why he works with some of the greatest people in the world, even though he doesn't really say a lot when you're around him. He's kind of quiet, keeps to himself. It's because he does extraordinary work. His content that he writes is incredible. And that's what led him to things like Saturday Night Live. Almost, that's what led him to shows like Saturday Night Live. Arguably one of the greatest, longest running shows in the history of television. And then the relationships led him to work with Triumph, the insult comic dog, obviously, Robert Smigel, which 
led him at times to work with other great people through both of those jobs with Pete Davidson and Judd Apatow on the King of Staten Island. And then through those relationships with Judd Apatow and Pete Davidson led him to create the new show called Bupkis. It's incredible what happens when you put your head down, you do extraordinary work, and that work is delivered strongly by everyone you give it to, and everyone believes in you because of that work. And it's not just a work ethic behind the scenes, it's the actual work on the page as well which always, always seems to kill and keep elevating Dave to higher and higher levels. I always say this, relationships, everybody. But what good are the relationships if you don't deliver far and above what everybody else delivers from the other relationships those people have? And let me tell you something, if you can figure out how to do that, you're going to have the possibility of the kind of career that Dave Cyrus has. For our audience, one of the most challenging things about being in a writer's room is that, or a think tank, or that alt circle where the bell rings and you huddle up and you say, okay, let's come up with a better line here. I have to share a quick story with you mm -hmm. that I've shared with my audience a long time ago, but it's one of my favorites in terms of alts. I was doing a pilot with Dave Chappelle, and it's the one of the Brewer one. No, it's, this is his first one when he was an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. um, the Jim Brewer one was called Buddies. That's an amazing story too, but I won't get into it. So he is a kid he's asking his mom listen mom i i you know i like more responsibility i can handle it the mom says i don't i don't think you can dave and the line that was in the script was to get animated and just say i'm not a baby mom and that was the joke and the crowd laughed and i could see the bell ring and the group of writers doing the alts huddling and the president of the network at the time was dean valentine and he came over to me and dave he said dave listen you see those guys over there they're right now they're trying to figure out a better line for you but um i want to do something i want to give you the chance to write a line for that scene to make it funny he said, but Dean, they're, they're going to come up and they're going to give me a line. I don't want to like upset them or whatever. I'm telling you, do whatever they tell you to do, do yours first. And then I'll tell them that you're doing it. And then you do their second when we change again. Can you come up with something? He said, yeah, I got something. And this is when I really, really knew that something special is happening because it's the simplicity sometimes that trumps the complicated mm -hmm. i said you got the line already you got what you want to do he said yeah i got the line i'm, I'm good i said he goes on the mom says to, hey dave i really don't think you could handle the responsibility he adds two letters 
mommy. I'm not a baby, mommy. Yeah. Fucking crowd goes crazy. It's like they're applauding wildly. I'm like, I can't fucking believe it. He just added two letters and killed. Yeah. And then Dean walked over. In the beginning of that story, I knew that's what that <laughs> line was and, definitely going to be. And, yeah. and the writers were like, uh, none of them came up with mommy. No. Jesus Christ. Who are these writers? <laughs> I thought that's the first thing I thought of. And so they just they just dispersed and they were like, ah, we were like, do you don't have to do our line after. There's only two words that would have made sense there that would have increased <laughs> that would have improved that that line. And I feel like any writer would would come up with both. It's you have to go. It's one of two directions. You have to say, I'm I'm not a baby mommy or cunt. either way. <laughs> You've heightened the joke as much as it's going to go. <laughs> I think, honestly, my favorite, the happiest I ever was in comedy. You're pretty happy right now telling that, telling that alternate line. What's that? You're huh? pretty happy right now telling that alternate line. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I... Anytime you can squeeze the C word in. Yeah. I mean, this was network, right? Yeah. But, you know, so, I mean, you can bleep it. It's fine. Um, no, I remember writing for a Triumph once, and uh, Robert wasn't happy with the monologue that we had for the live show. And RJ, our head writer, told me to just write, to just sit down for an for the time we had until he went live and write new monologue jokes while everyone else went and worked on something else. The fact that he singled me out as like oh dave's who's best at this kind of stuff meant so much to me and then i did it and I, the pressure i feel like i'm very good under pressure like if that's something with me like i do operate well under pressure i don't get nervous the fact that like i did those monologue jokes and they went well and he was happy and the fact that like the head writer like this is my first job after snl hadn't been there long no one knew me before that and like that he said oh dave's the one who should do this like that meant so much to me because i mean i think that like with triumph like uh, my best kinds of triumph jokes are like the not the larger premises but like the one-liners the straight like classic just don rickles like kind of joke writing is what i really love doing and like that's why i was so lucky to get to work with triumph and smigel but yeah like that was a moment where i was like i had done it i i had actually proven to the people in charge that this is what i was good at and that like was something especially after being fired from snl was really really important for me to feel and awesome. then I, and then i ended up going back to snl many many times as a guest writer um so i had to stop talking about being fired you know because it wasn't really accurate anymore exactly even though i loved being able to say i was fired by snl <laughs> and then i was like oh no, no, no i guess i'm back incredible i have so many questions i want to ask you so i'm just gonna go with a few that i think are are valuable to the audience how do you go from just being a guy in line Leno used to have this great thing he used to say to me, we're all in a line. You're starting, you haven't written anything on television really. You're at the back of the line, but somebody gets sick, somebody doesn't show up, somebody's on drugs, somebody calls somebody an asshole, and you move up in line. Tell our audience how you go from the back of the line to not only in the front of the line, but now 
here on the show i mean it's i think the idea and i've heard this you know years before that if you stay in there if you stay part of everything you will get an opportunity you will something will happen and you won't know when it is and you won't know how long it takes but something will happen where if you're good enough it will show through and you know for me it was multiple times of that of like things that were breakthroughs and then i still had to find more opportunities later um and i spent longer waiting for those opportunities than any sane person would so it's really a matter of one of it is being there being known being part of the environment i mean it's not like it used to be where 40 years ago if you just hung out at comedy clubs someone was going to put you on sooner or later but it's still a, a matter of people have to know who you are people have to see you you have to just be out there as much as possible in all the ways that are possible and eventually something will have a chance of of getting you there but it's really just about like staying in the difficult world of just continuing to struggle and grow and and work hard and not be lazy and you know there's and you have to just wait to be lucky okay so you're waiting to be lucky take us through 48 hours when you're not lucky to the point when you make a submission that was the thing that got you lucky which i'm not going to say you're lucky because you're not lucky you're you know no, everyone has to get lucky to even get those chances and then you have to be good enough so the submission that you submitted that final time that got you the job is it my uh presumption that that may not even have been your best submission you ever submitted well sure i mean with snl like i got the job at snl i wrote a submission and they were happy with my sketches and that's why i got that job but they were only interested in seeing my sketches because they were happy about my writing for the bieber roast so it, it was you know who knows which of those was more important uh and which of those had more weight to them uh they were very happy with how that went so that's why they wanted my submission and then I had to not screw that up either. So it's multiple levels of like having to be good enough in those situations. Um, and then right after SNL, the first packet I wrote uh, to apply for a job was to Triumph. And I got that, uh, which, you know, was also very important because I had just left SNL. So, you know, these are all things where like they really needed to go well for me to continue working. Um, and that I got lucky that those things did, you know, not just that they were decent enough, but that they were seen that way. Um, but yeah, when you're you're in a position where you're just trying and you're just hoping something changes, it's very easy to feel like nothing can change. But things are not preordained. You know, everything is everything is chaos. Things can bad things and good things can randomly happen. And people have to remember that that like the world is not nearly as ordered as we feel it is and that if you keep trying something can happen or it might not and you might be the greatest comic to never make it whoever lived which they're out there yes they are so you get in you walk into the room and 
it's interesting because last night I was with uh, Gina Savage, who is the one of the managers at the Comedy Cellar and the Olive Tree. And I, I think I asked her, like, what's the most interesting thing somebody said to you when you got here? And again, it goes back to Attell, of course. And he says something so simply, just runs into her for the first time in a long time. He says, oh, good to see you here. Eighth time is a charm. <laughs> and like, and Gina thought about it when she left. She's like, holy shit, this is my eighth place that I'm at. But I said, isn't it great that your eighth place is one of the greatest comedy venues, if not the greatest comedy venues in the world? And for you and her, I look at something and I knew I was going to sit down with you today because I thought of this thing. So she gets into the comedy cellar, which is the greatest thing in the world. You know, she finally gets to the pinnacle spot where comedians are. But what happens when you get there? There's a ton of people who've already been there. There's a ton of people who think to themselves, why did they bring somebody in from the outside? I should be doing that job. Mm -hmm. You get into the staff of Smigel or SNL, and there's a ton of guys who've been there before. Again, a presumption that may smile and shake your hand, but they don't want you there and they don't want you to do better than them. Yeah. How did you navigate through those things for so many years? Now I know what you'll say to me, Barry, I was fired. And when you were fired, that was the point where you didn't succeed in the chameleon-esque navigation to the best of your ability. But then what happened was, instead of just lying in bed and being depressed, you came right back and booked another job. But I want to know for our audience, when you get the dream gig, it's not the end. It's the beginning of the navigation because you got to figure out how to not only be valuable, but be valuable and be able to navigate with all those different personalities. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people do it different ways. And, you know, for me, it was about the discipline of joke writing and about really just having to just put out as much as you can and be really hard work and just 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 really prolific and just out how much you can output because i honestly think that like that i have a deficit in terms of interaction um i'm i don't think i'm good at at really knowing how to navigate uh social environments whether work or not so I feel like my writing itself, the jokes I'm able to write are the only thing that's compensating for that. I'm just going to tell you that I feel that's your greatest strength because you are not a schmoozer. You are not a guy who's always yapping, saying how great you are. You're not a guy who tries to be loved by everybody you keep your mouth shut and you let the work speak for yourself dr phil i always say this told me the greatest advice he ever got from his father never miss an important opportunity to shut the f up yeah and what you do is you shut up and you let your work speak for itself and that makes you a little bit believe it or not
actually you're gonna probably think I'm high when I say this but you are the closest person I know like Lorne Michaels because Lorne he keeps his personality more reserved don't get me wrong there's people he spends hours talking to and has great conversations but in the work environment famous people yes but in the work environment he keeps everything close to his vest and you don't know where he stands but the work speaks for itself and that's the way you operate in that i'm not saying you're lauren michaels you're like one of the greatest creators of all time yet or whatever but the way you interact and the way you are on a set is the closest to him of anybody i i know hmm. i mean i yeah i never thought of that but i i just think that like you know a lot of people have different strengths and you know it's okay to accept what your weaknesses are and for me that is meeting new people adjusting to social environments adjusting to sort of the nuances of interaction and office politics type stuff and i know that hurts me but it's also you know it's one of those things where you can it's not the only thing that exists and if you're good at other things it'll be okay hey everybody i hope you're enjoying this episode as much as i am if you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Now you said something to me that kind of let's go way, way back real briefly, take us back to where you grew up, the environment, your family, and what was the inspiration to get in this crazy f***ed up business at such a young age? Well, I mean, the thing about inspiration is that like, I didn't, I mean, I liked stand up and I was like 16 and I started feeling like I could do it. I started just having ideas for jokes and not the good ones or anything, but just I started writing down, you know, just ideas I had. And I was 17 when I had the first chance to like a, a comedy thing, like a, you know, some like hotel talent show. And I was surprised at how well it worked, partially because of how young I looked. That obviously is an advantage. But no, it, I just really felt like I wanted to. And I was also someone who, you know, 
socially, you know, didn't really know how to navigate that world and stand up presented a completely different environment for interaction where everything was the rules were completely different and maybe I was good at this kind of interaction with people as opposed to normal and a lot of comics I think it's like they, oh this is where I'm comfortable this is where people like me and I think that like being someone who really wanted to be you know liked and very social but didn't really have that opportunity made me want to you know do stand-up because as someone who had a lot of trouble growing up you find out that when you make someone laugh it's not voluntary they don't get to decide if they like you or not if you make them laugh they can't pretend they don't in that moment and i think also like doing stand-up is about the need for people to mainline happiness stand-ups are usually people who are extremely needy with approval and it's about just getting an unhealthy amount of it all at once like a drug god what was your first break you consider your first break where you said to yourself holy wow shit's happening uh, that would be the Brickstone videos when I was doing the YouTube videos, uh, making fun of hate groups, and those started getting viral and started getting attention from those. And I knew that they should. Like I was like, no, this is good. This is like fun. This is like really fun. I think people should enjoy this. And so I was really, really happy that those started being popular. I never expected to keep doing them, but it was like, oh no, there's more I can do here. I can keep doing this, going to these protests and ruining people's days, and and. It was nice. I mean, I didn't get a lot out of it career-wise, but I got credibility. I got, you know, to be like, oh, look, I am now a guy who's had multiple million-something hit videos. And, like, that. it was finally something that was a measure of credibility. One, two, Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names, some things. Just tell me, you can tell me a word, a sentence, a story, anything that associate with what it is. Lorne Michaels. Uh, uh, what to say about Lorne? Anything that comes to mind that there could be a story could be a sentence could be a little something could be something that happened between you and him could be something you witnessed i do remember one time uh when i was there first year of lorne of going towards the elevator and then lorne was getting on the same elevator and i realized i forgot my key card which means i would have been stuck like if i if i left without it so I just remember I still have not spoken to Lorne, which a lot of new writers don't, you know, early on. Um, and I just walked toward Lorne getting on the elevator and just turned around and left. And I know it looked like I just didn't want to get on the elevator with him. I just forgot my key card. And the whole time, like, he literally thinks I just saw him was like, ah, and ran away. And when was the, how long before you actually had a conversation with him again? Uh, seven years. 
seven years. You didn't have a conversation with the boss of the show for seven years. Conversation? No, I wouldn't say. Yeah, I, I didn't. I kind of didn't really feel like there was anything he needed to deal with me about. He was always nice. Like, it's not like he didn't, he wouldn't speak to me. I just avoided. You said something early on in this podcast where you're being hypocritical. You said a comedian has nothing to lose and a comedian, and again, I'm paraphrasing, when they go into a situation, they should know they should use the situation for their own benefit. Yeah, exactly. So you have a guy, you can Airbnb his mind Yes. And you never have one conversation with them. Why? Because that was me using my opportunities to not bother him. But how does that Airbnb his mind? Who says he wants to? It's not about him. It's about you. I My interpretation of the situation was this is a guy who everyone is constantly trying to get in the ear of. The coolest thing I can do is not bother him. So the first time you speak to him, how does that go down? What's the circumstances? No, it was it was normal. It was a good. No, but, but it was it's, a good seven, it's seven. No, I just I, I I went about with the attitude of just like, oh, everybody wants to like this guy is constantly getting like people inundated and they want something. And I just felt like it's like if I don't have something he needs to hear from me, why would I bother him with that? You know, I've always been polite and you know we've shaken hands and you know cool. But it's like I, you know, and like when I have spoken to him, it was very pleasant and he was very helpful and stuff. But it just honestly, it's like I I I never thought that like he needed to hear what I had to say I just no I don't I don't like bothering people no I got it I was gonna say that I would think that one of the things that you would do and I don't know you like you know you but just my instincts tell me that one of the things you would do to alleviate that is once a year you would write a sketch with him in it I mean I I think I did Pete and I did write occasionally uh, sketches that he would be in but at that era you almost never saw in those years Lauren almost never appeared in sketches it wasn't like the 90s where he was more often um, people would write sketches for Lauren to be in them all the time and it, it very rarely would he actually be in a sketch but it's funny how much the writers really wanted him to be in sketches like they were always writing something or other that involved Lauren because it's just such a fun thing to have him in a sketch um, and like I said like we spoke it like we would speak whenever it was like necessary but like I just I never tried to draw him into a conversation I never tried to like because I just feel like it's like he's the boss everyone wants him to like them everyone wants to have a little bit of his time and I just feel like that's probably exhausting and I'm like you know it's like I, I, I don't need to bother anyone you know that's that that's literally just my attitude is that like talking to me is going to be a hardship that I don't need to foist upon anyone got it I love the choice of words next name John Stewart I mean John is uh one of like my biggest sort of influences I guess like someone I've since I was a kid I just really loved meeting him was like one of the coolest like in terms of like I've met a lot of famous people but like that's one of the ones that was like the most meaningful to me uh, it was actually very nice of him when I met him in that he was meeting like a bunch of people in the room and after he met me he sort of stopped and then like 
in, he, he sort of stopped and sort of just implied that I was lying to him about something, which was very nice of him. You know, you know, one of the things where you just you meet a bunch of people and Dave, he just stopped like Dave, huh? Okay, I'm watching. Like just like just being naturally antagonistic, just to do a, just to do shtick for a stranger when you're John Stewart is like a very nice thing to do. So that was really cool. Like John, and John is someone who like. You know, I just so much of like what I understand about comedy comes from him, from watching The Daily Show from before he was on it uh, and, uh, you know, knowing just how naturally funny he is. Um, so he was your main influence for Brickstone? No, no, I wouldn't say that. I'd say my biggest influences for Brickstone are more uh, for Brickstone probably more Stephen Colbert and a little bit of uh, maybe uh, Phil Hartman a little I think the way the way I deliver the way that I was the kind of gimmick that I was doing the kind of comedy I think was more them because they were people who were doing that kind of uh, ironic news guy kind of thing. Uh, maybe Michael Ian Black a little bit. I think that's that was more what that was from. And but at the same, but the writing of of that was more like uh, almost Don Rickles ish in terms of what I was trying to do in terms of like how I was trying to insult people. But yeah, I'd say John overall is a big influence, but not in delivery, not in like the way that I. The, the kind of the kind of like way that I would deliver jokes Pete Davidson well Pete I mean you know I've been friends with Pete since before he was on SNL um, you know we've been good friends for a very long time uh, that's you know my biggest collaborator you know we started out doing you know the Justin Bieber roast and the Rob Lowe roast and a bunch of other stuff so you know it's really nice to, to just because like we have we're very different as comedians because I don't have a sort of like natural charisma that like he can utilize and that there are certain things that you know I can write that would work much better for him than myself um, and that it is good to have it's really great writing for him because like there are certain gifts that he has I, that help complement what you're doing um, that make it better than if I was doing it myself um, that but, goes back to what you said we were talking about with the words I remember one of his first stand-up sets where he said you know I you know I'm six foot three I you know weigh 100 and whatever 40 pounds i have I, to worry about i have, wind. Prob I have trouble i have wind. trouble with wind yeah the, just the, the word wind yeah, it's a good it's a because a very blunt sentence it's, it's one of those exact moments of like where the last word you say is the one that gets you to parse together what the person was saying and so you have that sort of like all at once comedic kind of understanding what the person's saying that like it's a rhythm thing and the word wind is just like you you know those of you listening you just say wind what's wind it's a regular word but it's not used in comedy that often yeah it's not and so it's something yeah. that you I remember all the time. It was good. Also, he used the word about his looks being, and he used the word ambiguous, I believe. I'm ambiguous in the face. Yes, yeah. I'm ambiguous in the face, a phrase yeah. that you never... How often do you hear I'm ambiguous in the face? Yeah, what was cool about writing with Pete was like it was the first time I got to write with someone where I was like, oh, I was like, oh, finally, I'm writing with someone who's making me better. Where like the product we're able to make together is better than the product I can make myself. Were you there when he was doing the open mics in New York City? Or no, you, you I was in LA. 
and we've done shows together a little here and there when we first met but no i was in la he was doing mics in new york you know as like a teenager i i know i'm elaborating on this more but i think the audience will love this how do you guys a lot a lot of times uh people uh who listen to this they wonder like what's the proper process to write with somebody you know and how do you do it and and i always say that and maybe you'll tell me i'm wrong there's no system normally this is the system there's one guy who's sitting at their computer and documenting the stuff and also contributing and there's one guy pacing around a room or sitting in the corner or just lying down or whatever or getting up or chewing on chips and doing whatever and they're just as creative but there's the guy who's documenting it who's creative yeah and then when you get to a certain level then you can have a writer assistant do the typing yeah. but i mean before you're at that level and the writer's assistant position by the way for those of you listening <laughs> If ever you can figure out how to get any kind of gig, that's your entrance, a huge entrance in the door. If you can get there and do a great job there, you're going to go through the whole system. But but anyway, so for you and Pete, can you share with our audience what is your system when you're in a room you know, collaborating? Uh, I mean, typically, yeah, I was the guy typing you know in those days uh before it was more of a system you know like a whole you know group of people but yeah no it was um yeah i would be typing and it was more like it was always like just sort of mining people's ideas and and then just sort of you know i was always good at sort of distilling down to like the dialogue stage and getting the best things out of him and and that's the thing pete's very good at you know coming up with just general premises and just sort of big ideas which are very which then can be then can be finessed and made into like working bits so it was was a really good uh it was a really good situation it was really we really were able to figure out a lot and you know i think we just have a certain comedic sensibility where like we know what each other is saying that is funny and it's a really it's a it was a, just a good system of like it's, it's okay we're in new york i don't even care yeah it's just a good system of being able to really help each other bring out what we were best at i think is what it really was Judd Apatow. I mean, getting like the fact that like I've gotten to work like with a fairly small number of creators and Smigel and Apatow are on there is like incredibly lucky because you know Judd is another person like Smigel who before I worked with him was one of the biggest influences I had in comedy. I mean, I didn't actually know how much of Judd's work was important to me until I met him and actually became aware of how many things that I loved that he had done. I didn't know that he was, before I met Judd, I didn't realize this is a guy who was at least partially responsible for The Critic, Larry Sanders Show, Anchorman, Walk Hard. Like these are all so many of like the most important things in my life comedically so like getting to work with judd getting to like talk to judd and hear judd and see judd work was extremely educational for me like he's it, no getting judd to respect you as a writer is a lot it, it means a lot and like that was really cool i mean i i did not know how much of what i loved Judd was an integral part of. I didn't know that he that he wrote so much of Anchorman. Uh, I didn't know that he you know wrote so much of the critic. I mean, I 
there he's I actually love his TV work that no one even knows about, like most of anything, the Freaks and Geeks, Undeclared, uh, all these shows that he wrote for, like, it's just, it's, it was really, really cool getting to like talk to him and have like a friendly relationship with a guy that I had that level of respect for and just get, and someone that like to get to learn from him was just a really, really lucky thing. Your proudest moment in show business. Well, aside from the that monologue thing with with RJ and Triumph, proudest moment in show business is such a god. I don't. That is a hard thing. Uh. Well, let's see. There's so few things I can think through. There's so few things to be proud of. So when you were at the um, Apollo recently for the premiere of Bupkis at the world famous Apollo. Yeah. In that incredible theater premiering the episodes of the show, that wasn't your Oh no, that was great. And that was what that I was doing there what, you know, I think all comics would do in that situation is getting to sit there uh watching people uh watching your watching people watch your show and doing obviously uh counting which jokes were mine that were getting laughs, <laughs> i mean i think um well actually here's here's what it was there are two things that as a kid i really wanted to happen there were two things as a child i really wanted for someday to happen one of them was being able to sit in a theater and watch people watch something i did and the premiere is one thing but it's a premiere so it's a th it's only in a theater because it's a premiere and these are all people who are there as fans and with king of staten island there it, because of the pandemic it wasn't in theaters but before that i was able to be in a test audience for king of staten island and that was a really good moment and there was a line in that movie that was not in the earliest cut that i it was the only thing that i like really said i needed to be back in the movie and it got one of the biggest laughs in the theater so that was very very validating um that was a really good moment for me. And it was the Ruby Tattoos Day line. <laughs> um, another thing that happened, this is something I always wanted as a kid to be able to happen. I wanted to be able to turn on TV and be on two different channels at once. <laughs> That's what I always wanted. And one night randomly on TV was the Justin Bieber roast on Comedy Central and a rerun of SNL with that had like one of the very few sketches I actually wrote on playing. Like it was this one between Chris Christie and Trump that I I wrote with. Uh, was I mean it, was, it wasn't even my sketch. I just wrote on it. It was it was a Bryant sketch, but it was uh, it was it was Brian Tucker's. But it was still like it was still my joke. Like you know it was part of the. But just yeah, the fact that like I not i never cared if it was me but it was still my writing on both at the same time that i could go from one channel to another that was something i always wanted to exist that i got so that was really cool your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level um i mean i mean not standard snl was very difficult um, and the fact that I was able to get the triumph job right afterward is so much to me what helped me survive that. Um, 
I mean, SNL was hard. It's hard for a lot of people. And I was never really a sketch writer. So it was a difficult thing. Um, I think even on, aside from that, you know, years of crippling disappointments for things that seem like they're going to go well, you know, auditions that don't go well. The fact that I was getting millions of hits on YouTube and I couldn't get a real job out of it. That didn't make sense just because people thought it was too sort of controversial to to make a network thing out of. So it was just it was one of those things about just the idea of like being able to just keep going and just make yourself not wallow in it that I think uh, is was all it really was is just it's just a matter of being able to not care that much that things aren't working and actually have the desperation to keep going because you have nothing else last question what advice do you have for the young person out there who's growing up in New Jersey in high school uh, getting stuffed in a locker figuring out this crazy business and getting to a point to have the kind of amazing relationships and career you have well I mean the, the problem is we live in an environment right now where everyone if you want to get anywhere you have to make a name for yourself through social media even though so many of those people are then not prepared for that job and this is a it's a world right now of like a lot of crossover and and most people can't seem to adapt and I think adapting is what helps people survive if you can adapt to the changes in the environment adapt to what is getting people somewhere not getting stuck not getting hyper focused not getting intransigent and being able to change what you're doing according to what's going on being able to improvise being able to just have a lot of outs have a lot of different ways and not getting overly just fixated I think is a big thing for anyone in trying to make it Dave Cyrus this has been incredible I really appreciate it I wish I had a group of words to string together that were as imaginative as uh, your career because I don't, I don't have that but <laughs> I, I have an enormous amount of respect for you not that it means anything but I can't see any ceiling for you at all i mean you're one of the few guys that i feel could be running a studio running a network running his own show uh maybe uh everything and what you've done with king of staten island and bubkiss and the collaborations you made with great people i always say show me who you're with and I'll show you who you are. And I remember long, long ago with Jay Moore, 25 years ago. You don't remember that. I do not believe you remember meeting me then when I did the video with Jay. Why don't you believe that? Because why would you? Why would you possibly remember that? What possible reason could you have? When I interview, I was doing a video and I was interviewing someone about interviewing comics with the worst comic who ever existed and having them make up fake stories about it. And Jay made up a story. And then someone else that was in the, someone else that was doing the movie, his story was about Jay. And I didn't know that. And I put them next to each other without even knowing that they knew each other and that the story he was telling was about, it was a whole mess. But yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, I was just, I was a guy with the camera just being like asking Jay Moore to just please do a free few minutes for this video I I have these weird memories of things and other things I don't remember but 
you know jay was always a guy who again you talk about somebody who wasn't technically ready on the it appeared mm -hmm. but was a guy who had a photographic memory and he wasn't ready emotionally yeah but his talent based was on there. his book i'd say so yes. yeah but Gatsby i'm for airtime but i'm uh, i'm very grateful for you being here thank and, you so uh, much and, uh, thank too. you for taking the time and uh it's an honor it really yeah. is thanks buddy thanks barry i appreciate it as always this has been industry standard with me barry katz and if you like the show tell all your friends and if you don't like the show tell all your friends All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.